First Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 is a very interesting passage. Uh, I will say to you just right up front, uh, as I studied this out, it pertains more to the pastor than it does to the parishioner. Uh, so forgive me if I speak to myself today. I'm glad you're here. Uh, but some of these things will be applicable to you uh, as, as you're going to see. So um, the last thing that the devil uh, wants to see on his turf, and this earth is his turf currently, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, uh, until the Lord comes back and, and evicts Satan uh, from his, the, what's the Lord's turf. The last thing the devil wants here are uh, Christian leaders, whether it's a pastor, uh, professor, educator, Sunday school teacher, uh, whoever's imparting the truth. The last thing he wants is someone sold out to Jesus Christ. That is the last thing he wants. Because if you sit down, as I did the other day, well, what really bothers the devil about uh, God, godly leaders? Well, think about what a godly leader does. Uh, they turn abject unbelievers into believers as they present the gospel of Christ. They are radically changed. He doesn't want that. Uh, a godly leader is not afraid to address sin. Even though they might be unpopular if they do it, they address sin. The devil doesn't want sin addressed. A godly leader uh, teaches people how to stand for truth. Uh, again, the devil, uh, he wants lies spread. A godly leader uh, is not e easily intimidated. Uh, they live consistent lives, not hypocritical lives. They're loyal to the word of God, even though the culture may change and call things that were sin, uh, not sin. Uh, the, the godly leader doesn't change. He teaches the word of God. Um, the godly leader rise, relies on the spirit's power. He realizes that no matter how much he prepares, uh, at the end of the day, it's not by his might, but by the Spirit's might that he does what he does. I mean, all of these things really bother the devil. I don't know about you, but I, I plan on bothering the devil with my life. Um, because uh, at the end of the day, I have to stand before God and give account to whether I actually taught the truth or I didn't teach the truth, whether I lived a godly, consistent life or I did not. Uh, and... Um, all leaders, wherever God has you, whether you're in the men's ministry, women's ministry, whatever it is that you're doing, uh, you should be living in such a way uh, that you're causing uh, problems for the kingdom of darkness because you are living the kingdom of light. And that was the Apostle Paul. Uh, when he became a Christian, he lived a very powerful life teaching the Word of God. And uh, he had three missionary journeys, and Paul learned on his very first journey that he was not going to be the, uh, the favorite guy in the room all the time. Uh, his first missionary journey, and we'll get to First Thessalonians in just a minute. Uh, his first missionary journey uh, in Acts chapter 13, uh, he, he sailed over to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. And when you know it, the very first person he bumps into is a sorcerer na named Elamus and uh, opposed, opposed Paul uh, to his face. Uh, when he set sail from there, he went to uh, the coast of, uh, southern coast of Turkey to a place called Pamphylia. Uh, he, he stepped into a Jewish synagogue, being trained in uh, the law and the prophets as a, as a rabbi. He went right in, felt quite comfortable, began to teach that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, uh, it didn't go over well for Paul there. Uh, they you know, basically ran him and his missionary team out of town. Uh, in, in, a, in a violent, verbal way. And if you just read all of Paul's missionary journeys, that's pretty much how it went. So if, you ever, if you're contemplating going into the ministry because you think it's easy, it's no problem, coast into glory, uh, probably should think otherwise because if you're going to teach the Word of God and live the Word of God, you're going to experience opposition. And that was the Apostle Paul. So when he gets to Thessalonica, <coughs> after being persecuted in Philippi, he gets to Thessalonica, goes to the synagogue, preaches about Jesus being the Messiah for three weeks, uh, and it, it, the, the town just explodes. People get saved, 
But the majority of the people at the synagogue oppose Paul and drive him out of town. And uh, basically, they run him out of town in the middle of the night, as it were. And he runs to Berea. And when you think about that, when you read chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is, he is just, he's in Corinth. He's writing uh, 1 Thessalonians from Corinth. He dispatched Timothy to go see how the church is doing in Thessalonica. Timothy comes back, gives him a report. In chapter 2 is Paul responding to what they're saying about him. Because the, the devil has two methods of, of trying to silence a godly speaker. Uh, internal attacks or external attacks. He vacillates between the two. Sometimes he does one and then does the other. Sometimes he both, does both at the same time. Uh, and if you study uh, in anybody's life that was a great saint in the older New Testaments, you will find these things happening to them, whether it was uh, Moses being opposed by Korah in the rebellion uh, or Paul being uh, opposed by the Jewish leaders in the synagogue, constantly being attacked to, to silence them. Uh, but you couldn't silence Paul. He continued to preach on. And so when you look at this chapter, uh, here is what I think the entire chapter is about. It's going to answer basically a, a, the following question. How should a godly leader defend his or her work from opponents of the faith? Because there are opponents of the faith. As you preach the word of God, as you teach the word of God, uh, you know, really, I mean, should you defend yourself? Yes. How did Paul do it? Well, he's going to show you three things that he did. And so the things that he says here, we're going to have to kind of read between the lines because he's responding what, to what Timothy's telling him he heard in Thessalonica about how they're trying to silence Paul's impact there. Paul's going to respond uh, to that letter, and he's going to tell you three things that you should do uh, to defend what you do when you stand for the Word of God. Number one, uh, verses two to, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he said you should defend your motives. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, because a lot of people became believers in the Jewish community and in the Gentile community. But he says, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Um, if you have leaders in the Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica, people of prominence, people that have known uh, their people in their synagogue for years, the people are going to respect those rabbinical leaders, etc. So if they start saying things that are contrary to Paul, people are probably going to listen to them. And so they're beginning to deal with Paul. And they're not attacking Paul's statements about Christ the Messiah, per se. They're attacking Paul. It's very difficult to, uh, to defend yourself as a leader against people who attack your motives. How do they know what your motives are? And that, I don't even know how many times that's happened to me, where people attack your motives. That's what they do to Paul. They attack his motives. Uh, and why do they do that? I don't know how you feel about the, the rock group, the Eagles. Remember them? I know it's an old group. I know it's old. Uh, but Don Henley sings about the fact that people love dirty laundry. You know the song? Now you do. Or you won't confess it in church? Yes. Um, yeah, they, they love dirty laundry. So they'll, they'll listen to people say disparaging things about a person that you're like, well, that, that doesn't seem like them. And that's what Paul's doing. And so what they're going to do here is they're going to they're question his motives because when he was persecuted, he left town. That's what he did. When he was in Philippi, he stood his ground. Remember in Acts 16, when he's in Philippi, before he gets to Thessalonica, he's 
brought before the authorities. He's whipped after they stripped him and, and Silas. They beat him with a flagellum. Flagellum was a, a, was a, a stick of baby about two feet long with leather uh, straps on it. And it was, had pieces of metal tied into it. And it would easily remove your flesh. You would think if you were beaten like that for preaching the word of God, if you got to the next city, you probably wouldn't do it. Paul's like, no, I'm doing it. You can't stop me. So he, they are beaten and mistreated in Philippi. And that's what he says in chapter 2. Uh, but why, why is he bringing that up? Well, he's bringing that up because of what they're saying about him. If you were the opponent of Paul, uh, and he made great inroads uh, into your synagogue, and a lot of your parishioners became believers in the Messiah, uh, they, you would start attacking him somehow. That's exactly what they did. Uh, so if he left like in the middle of the night, as it were, to get out of Dodge, what kinds of things would you say about the man? He's chicken. He's chicken. I don't know if they use that vernacular, but we would. Uh, he's a coward. Uh, he's a yellow belly. I think that's a Southern term. Is that true? Yes. Um, you know, if, why didn't he stand around and fight like a man? I mean, if he really is such a great godly man, he turned tail and ran at the first sight of opposition. And so they are probably saying those things about Paul to attack his motives. Paul says, but if you remember, I'm, don't you think he had only traveled 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica? There was 100 miles in there. So by the time he got to Thessalonica, began to teach, don't you think that the scars from the flagellum whipping are still on his body? So if anybody questioned his motives, what did he have to do with his tunic? You know, it's, I'm not that I'm going to do anything. Nothing happened to me, but, you know, so let me uh, lift this up and show you what they did to my back. That's all he had to do. That should silence, uh, you know, all, all, all gossip about whether he's, he's, he's brave or not. But he said, no, I was, I was brave. You know, that, that's what you have to be in our culture is brave. Because if you're not brave, uh, no one else is going to be brave. It, bravery breeds bravery, does it not? Cowardice breeds cowardice. And here was a godly man, even when he was beaten and imprisoned. Remember, we talked about it before. He sat in a cell singing songs at midnight. The angel came, opened the cell doors. Uh, people got saved. The, jail the jailer got saved. His family got saved. So Paul and Silas turned to those kinds of opposition uh, to good for the gospel. And that's the way we should view things, is not be intimidated. Paul wasn't intimidated. And even though they questioned his motives, uh, he still carried on. Uh, they brought another false charge against him other than being a chicken in verse 3. He says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing to men who examines our hearts. So there was a thing back in that day called a peripatetic preacher. Uh, peripatetic means to walk around. And so like a sophist uh, teacher would walk around and teach. Uh, and they would come to town, especially these port cities like Thessalonica. They had a lot of these false teachers that would come around with new doctrines and new ways to think. Uh, and they were, all, they were only there for one thing. They were there to make money. And, and they, were, they were all known to be in these towns. And, and Paul is saying, um, I'm not one of them. Because notice what he says. He says, uh, our exhortation did not come from error or impurity uh, or by way of deceit. Because that's how the false teachers came. Now, Paul, Paul says, we weren't here uh, to woo you to a false position uh, so that we could get money from you. We were here to give you the free gospel. That's why it was there. He says, we were entrusted with the gospel. Aren't you? 
What are you supposed to do with it? I mean, don't you think the Lord's going to ask you that one day? Especially if you're a leader. I entrusted you the gospel. Did you give the gospel? We got to ask the question, well, then what is the gospel? Um, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 and pay attention to the verbs, verbs, you know, grammar, the verbs tell the whole story of the gospel. Here's what it says. Here's Paul writing in Corinth. It says, now I make known to your brethren the gospel by which I preached to you, which you also received and which also you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Then he goes on to say, notice I've highlighted the verbs, in case you don't like verbs. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received that Christ did what? Died. Why? Well, for our sins. According to the scriptures, that's prophesied. And that's not all he did. It says in verse 4 that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Uh, he goes on to say, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. This is after he was resurrected. Most of them whom remain until now, but many have fallen asleep, was just a Greek euphemism for death. Uh, he goes on to say, and then he appeared to James, his brother, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, uh, as it were, to one untimely born, appeared to me. He said, uh, when I gave you the gospel, he said, uh, I'm the least of all the apostles. whom who've, I'm not fit to become an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But he said, I gave you the gospel. What is the gospel? Christ came, he died, he rose again, and he was seen by many witnesses. And all you had to do is go around and interview the witnesses. Were you there? Yeah, I was there. Did you see him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you see the wounds? Yeah. I saw his hands and his feet. I, I saw him. He, talk, he talked with us. Uh, he went around and, and, and spoke. And imagine he appeared to his brother James. If your brother came to you and told you at home one day when you're teenagers that he was the Messiah and God in the flesh, what would you say? You laugh, why? Because that's exactly what you would do. Sure, right. You might be the firstborn. There's no way you're God. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when Jesus died and rose again, don't you find that just, it's a loving thing? He goes to his brother, James, and says, hey, James, it's me. And I, I was the God man who died for your sins. James became a great leader in the church, as we know. So Paul says, I am entrusted with the gospel, that gospel that, that saves a person from sin. And he says, because so much is at stake, I can't stop talking about it. You can beat me. You can put me in a prison. Uh, you can cancel me however you want to, but I cannot stop preaching the gospel of Christ. It's the free gospel. You don't have to work for it. It's a free gift. You have to just stop as a side note and just ask yourself, you ever received that gift? Have you received that gift? Do you know that Christ as Lord and Savior? And if you don't, uh, to become a believer, a Christian, is to say, Lord, you died for my sin and you rose again to be victorious. I want you to be my savior, and he will save you. Paul says, I preach that gospel for free. I don't do like a sophist, charging people. Verse 4, he says, so we speak not as pleasing to men, uh, uh, but to God who examines our heart. Uh, the word for examine is a, is a word dokimatso, dokimatso in Greek. Uh, it is a coinage term, and it means uh, uh, how you would tell the difference between a fake coin and a true coin. You would test it. You would have to test that coin. Um, much like if you look at uh, dollars uh, in our, in our uh, one time I, I sold a car and the guy was going to pay me in cash. Uh, and um, knowing you know, from how I was raised with my dad dealing as a federal agent with counterfeit money, um, I went and bought one of those pins. 
that you, that you run over the money just to make sure it's real. So as the guy's giving me all these hundreds for my car, I'm, you know, dragging the pin over it. And uh, just to make sure they're real, you're examining it, you know, because I don't want to get ripped off. He says that God, God examines our hearts. I take this very seriously. I know all the, all the staff do, and I know our teachers here at church do. When you are trusted with the gospel and the word of God, it's a serious thing. You're representing God, what God says, and you have to know that God's going to test you to examine. Are you, are you teaching truth or not? Is it truth? Uh, and Paul says, uh, I, I am not here to please men. And I, as a leader, must say, I'm not here to please men. I'm not here to be your best friend, although I like to be friendly. I'm not, make you, I'm not here to make you comfortable all the time. Uh, I'm not here to, to say positive things all the time, although I do at times. Don't I? <laughs> but I have to teach truth. Any leader that stands before God has to teach truth. And they have to teach the truth of the gospel no matter what. And Paul says, God examines my heart. So before God, I feel good. So they, they, test your, they test your motives. Been there, done that. They test your methods. He says uh, in verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed. He says, God is our witness. Uh, nor did we uh, seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Paul said, I could have thrown my, my, my authority around all day long. I could have told you I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, that I've seen him face to face in his glory. He called me to my position, etc. He said, I didn't throw my title around. But that's what the Greek sophists and the Epicureans, the Stoic philosophers, it was always about their title. Call me doctor, whatever. You know what? It doesn't really matter. You think when you get up to heaven, God's going to care about all those titles? Yeah, let me, uh, uh, what titles did you have? And sometimes when you read all those titles after people's names, do you even know what they are? I don't know what they are. That person in question thinks that they're all that in a bag of chips. But um, you're thinking, what's that? No big deal to me. The LLC, the this, the that, the amen. I don't know. Um, he, he's going to question their meadows here. He said, we didn't come flattering and saying to you nice things. And uh, we weren't here to get, get money off of you. This is not why I preach is to make money. Uh, I preach because I'm called to preach and teach, uh, and I've done it for no money. Uh, not that I want to stop and do that right now, but <laughs> since I bought a house here, but I've been, done many Bible studies and stuff as a young man. I got, got no pay for it, working in a warehouse, but he says, we, we, we didn't do this to make money off of you uh, like the false teachers do. When I was in seminary, um, I was watching TV one day, and, and this was in Dallas, Texas, and I was probably 22 at the time, uh, and there was a pastor uh, in the area. His name, name was Peter Popoff. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before, uh, and, and Peter was supposedly a great healer, uh, and so I found this very interesting to watch this uh, guy uh, in his church, and so he's walking all around the church, big cameras and everything, and um, he would stop at different, it's like if I left the stage and started walking around, and I, you know, I'll, I'd stop at a, you know, he'd stop at a person, and he'd say, I perceive that your name is Ethel. Oh, my Lord, yes. Uh, this is what would, and, and then he would say, oh, no, God's giving me a word, a word, a word right now. You have got, you got gallstones. Is that true? Yes, praise God, yes. And then he would say, well, I heal you right now. And then he would hit her, and she'd fall on the ground. I'm like, whoa, not even like church I ever went to. And so, you know, I was watching the service, and, you know, ladies laying in the aisle. I'm like, what happened to her? And guys walking around doing the same thing all over the church. Has all this esoteric knowledge about people. And then the, the camera pans back about 30 minutes later, and I see the lady's legs in the hall, or in the, in the aisle. She's still there. She got hit. Something happened to her. Um, I was watching this. That's why I found it very amusing uh, to, to watch what was going on. 
and I found out later, uh, there was a, a, a skeptic named James Randy, not a Christian, thought this was kind of fishy. How could a man walk around, arbitrarily call people by name, identify their ailments and all this stuff just because he knew it? And they found out that he had a wireless earpiece. And he had somebody up in a control booth who gathered the information from the people prior to the service, their name, you know, where they were from, what their ailment was, and they had to sit in certain locations. So whenever Peter would get near those people, that person's telling him, but via radio signal, what to say. Serious. Well, he amassed a fortune of $10 million doing that. Unbelievable. What would Paul have to say about him? Probably a lot. He's like, no, you don't do ministry for money like that. Not greed like that. Not deception like that. Paul said, that's not how we came to you. So they questioned his methods and they questioned question his motives. Then they're questioning Paul's methods, you know. Well, he's just there to get money off of you. Paul's, no, no that's, not, not, that's not why we did what we did. But it's really hard when you shepherd uh, a church uh, or, or lead any kind of ministry, if you're leading it, when people question your methods, why you do what you do, it's, it's hard. It's very difficult. When I was a young pastor, uh, there was a lady who questioned my methods. And I was like, really? Uh, I had little children um, we were building this church. We probably had about 45, 50 people in this church plant at the time. There was, we, we didn't have a building. We were renting a school. So we wanted to do backyard uh, summer clubs. And so no, no, one, no one would volunteer their house for the little children to do a Bible club. And I'm a turf guy. Children on my turf. Major thing to pray about. So no one would volunteer. I had this beautiful line, and I'm like, well, Lord, I'll give up my line for you. You know? So we had all the little kids came over, running all over my turf and everything. It was like freaking me out, but like, Jesus, this is for you. Um, but, but this lady said, this lady said, because I heard through other, other people, this lady, this naysayer type, uh, she said, well, the, the pastor doesn't love children. That's what she told people. Well, then when I volunteered my house and my yard, she's, she stopped saying that. And so she brought her child to this backyard Bible thing that we did at our house. So the day we got there with all the kids, it was, it was a lot of fun. And I asked people, other guys in the church, to lead games. No one would lead games. I asked guy after guy. I'm like, well, you used to play baseball. You used to play basketball. You, no, I'm not leading games. So I was at my house with no game leader. What would you do if you are the leader? Wouldn't you step forward and say, I'll, I'll lead the games. So I stepped forward and said, okay, well, nobody else wants to do the games. I'll lead the games. So I led the games uh, all over my turf. Had a great time that day. And after it was all said and done, a lady came up to me and she said, you know that lady that's the naysayer, you know, that said you don't love children? Mm-hmm, yeah, I know her. She said, she leaned over to me when you volunteered to lead the games, lead the games, and this is what she said to me. She said, look at him. He's such a control freak. I mean, it's like, are you, I can't, I can't win for losing. I mean, do you see what I mean? They question your motives. Okay, I got to present the facts to defend myself. They question your meth methods. Well, I would gladly give the games to anybody, but everybody just sat there like, you know, statues, you know? Here's another thing. Uh, verse seven, Paul says, but methodologically, he said, we proved to be gentle among you, which is, what are they telling you? Well, it's telling you when he makes the statement that we were gentle among you, that they were saying he wasn't gentle among you. Ah, oh, he's a rough pastor. 
He doesn't love you. You know, he said, we were like a nursing mother, tenderly caring for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. You know, they could have said, he's so intellectual. Half the time, I don't even know what he's talking about. He's intellectual. He's cold. He's aloof. He's this. He's that. Paul's like, if you consider the facts, we were very loving towards you. Because you think about it. People who had been multi-generation Jewish people in the synagogue, when they heard the gospel about the Savior, who was the Messiah, and they entrusted him as the Messiah, radically changed their lives. Don't you know they had questions when they left Judaism? Uh, now, Paul, exactly, what should I do with the Torah? <laughs> kind of wondering. Uh, you said Jesus fulfills it. Does that mean that, do I still observe the 10? And how about the 613 additional commandments? And, and what about the Mishnah? Do I observe some of that? Do I, do I go to the temple? Do I offer sacrifice? I mean, is that, is that all over with now? See? And then all the Gentiles who were polytheists that got saved in that church, they had their whole, whole boatload of questions. Hey, uh, Paul, I was just kind of wondering, uh, you know, do, uh, do I offer a votive offering uh, when I go to work? Because they have a little altar there for votive offerings for the idols. And if you don't do it, you don't get a, you don't get a pay raise. And you, I, I, could, I could lose my job. I mean, sh sh should I offer a votive offering so I could still get paid? Um, what's wrong with uh, temple prostitutes? It's just worship. That's what my family's done for generations. I mean, don't you think God would think that's okay? I mean, this kind of stuff. I mean, don't you know he fielded question after question? I mean, he, he was constantly fielding questions. Why? Because he loved the people. And so what are they saying? Uh, he, he's not gentle. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. And Paul's like, consider the facts. Consider the facts. What were the facts? Verse 9. For consider, recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. How working night and day, so as not to burden any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you as believers. What was Paul's occupation? What was he? He was, he was a tent maker. He was a tent maker. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12, Acts 18, 3 uh, tells us that's not what he did. But to work with a tent, you had to have a really good grip. Because you're working with probably a leather product that's heavy. And it's hard, and they don't have the machines like we have now. You have to pull this thing, stretch this thing to, to repair it, to, to build them, etc. He said, it says here, you remember our labor and hardship. Now, you can't see it in the English text, but in the Greek text, both of those words are prece preceded by an article, the, that they didn't translate. Because it wouldn't make a lot of sense in English. But in Greek, they both have the article, and the reason being, he wants to emphasize the fact that while we preached to you during the day, we worked really hard at night. Why would a pastor do that? Because he loved his people. He said, I was with you teaching the word in Bible studies all day long and homes, went from home to home, fielding questions. Uh, you, we went to the Agora to go shopping. You stopped us. You asked us questions. We've always fielded your questions, etc. You sent us an email. We responded. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's, that, that type of thing. Uh, why did we do all this? Because we love you. Because we loved you. And then we would stay up late at night working on tents and making tents to make money so you didn't have to feel burdened by us. And, you know, so all these naysayers, they're of the devil because your shepherd loves you. And I, and I will and I'm gonna tell you, I mean, after 14 years here, I sense the love you have for your leadership here and we love you back. That's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, you know, love is, is what gives the gospel power. And Paul says, uh, they can question my methods all day long, but uh, no, consider the facts. And the next time somebody whispers in your ear things about other godly leaders, 
things that are contrary to what you know about that person's life, uh, you should hold them accountable. You know, those things you're saying about that person do not, they do not match the facts of their life. Because I have talked with that pastor. That person, pastor has spent time with me. That pastor has called me back, has visited me at the hospital, has prayed for me, has answered my emails, has answered my questions, is there for me. Those are the facts. Stand on the facts, not what a naysayer says. The last things that they do that you should do uh, when you are opposed is defend your message. That's what Paul did. Uh, in verse 11, he says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, what, were he, what was he exhorting them for? So that you might, may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I mean, think about this. They're, they're questioning Paul's message. What was his message? The word of God, the gospel of Christ. They're questioning that. Now, you can just hear the things that they're saying about Paul. And here's a possible list. He's so judgmental. He's so uncaring. He's so un unloving. He's so opinionated. And you're not. Uh, he's so inflexible. He won't listen to anything about, except you can just go down the list. They're questioning his message. Paul said, uh, well, when it comes down to the message, uh, I, I can't waffle on the message. The, the message is the gospel that saves a soul. Uh, and he said, uh, we, were, we were exhorting you with that message. And it's that message that's going to call you into God's kingdom one day. We, we didn't flinch on that. He said, I was like a father with my children, educating you in biblical truth. Um, all I wanted at the end of the day is that you would walk worthy. I thought about this all week. What, what do I want as a pastor for my church? Number one, that you would know Christ as Savior. It's pretty simple what I want. Number one, that you would know Christ as Savior and the power of the gospel to transform your life. And number two, that you would walk worthy. And that, and that I would walk worthy, but that you would walk worthy. So that on judgment day, that we can all stand before God's throne and he can say, you have walked worthy. Are you walking worthy? We're gonna sing. We don't normally close the service with a song, but why not mix it up? I'm not singing. We're gonna have the team come out uh, and we're gonna sing a song. Uh, you're thinking, praise God. Thank you. Um, Pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders who are godly leaders, be who they are in our church. Why don't you stand as the team comes and we're going to pray. God, we uh, give ourselves to you. Pray that we might walk worthy of your holy name. Forgive us when we haven't, when we've compromised, uh, lived in sin that's been hypocritical to our faith. Help us to be consistent in our love of you. And may that love of you spill over into our love of others. Uh, guard all of our leaders in our church because we know our adversary has great plans to try to silence them. May we be fearless, courageous, and compassionate as we hold forth the word of Christ and the great gospel of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Amen.